What a great blessing for us to be together. Uh, thank you for the encouragement of singing those songs of praise to God and, and to one another. So we're singing these hymns to, our, to each other to help stir us up to love and good works as well. We're reflecting on the words that we're singing about the holy God that we're here to serve. What a great blessing and reminder that is. I thank you so much uh, for your good work there, Jason, and, and leading those for us. Um, when we think about the Apostle Paul in this text that we just read, it is incredible to imagine that someone who had dedicated his life so wholly to serving the Lord, he had given himself in so many ways, would feel the need to defend himself. And yet that's what he's doing in 2 Corinthians 11. He even comes to the point of saying, I'm acting like a fool in saying these things in verse 23. And he's talking about the comparison between himself and some who have come to Corinth acting as false apostles, who have been taking some of the disciples under their wing and sort of saying that the things Paul is teaching are not complete or that he's really not a real apostle. He doesn't even charge them for his service was one of the accusations that he speaks as a weak man. He really doesn't have the force of the things that he writes. He, when he gets there to speak, he's sort of weak. And you can see he doesn't really even believe he's an apostle. And yet these are the things he was willing to go through for the sake of the Corinthians, many of these things, and for the sake of others that he was serving. And at the very end, in verse 31, he says that God knows he is not lying about the things he suffered and the things he's claiming. He's claiming to be an apostle chosen by the Lord. And he writes to them in the first letter, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, that the things that he's writing are the commandments of the Lord. Paul felt the need to defend himself in the first century, and certainly in the centuries that have followed, there's been a need to defend the apostle Paul from those who would say, that his writings are not inspired. He is, as he calls himself at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Some doubted because he was teaching Gentiles. Some doubted because he was teaching Jews and Gentiles together. The book of Romans is a testament, and also the letters of the Corinthians are testament to the fact that you had these two groups together, brought together, united in Christ. But many doubted. The Jews questioned him, the Gentiles questioned him, and many others were doubtful. And that hasn't changed. I want to share with you a letter I received from someone I love that was challenging uh, Paul's authority and the things he's writing. I just wanted to comment quickly on the biblical question of a woman's place in church. First, this is Paul's writings, not the word of God or Jesus. I'm sure you will say that they are inspired, but they're also tempered by the time and lifestyle of Paul's time. There were many prejudices then as now, and I think he gave in to these and many things. You can see some things that they were trying to bring out. The initial question they were, they were bringing was a woman's place in church. We were having a discussion about these things. And they were arguing and decided it was worth writing about that Paul isn't really writing what God thinks. He was writing what Paul thinks. And he had been tempered by his time to write such things. And so I want to address that a little bit to consider, is Paul inspired? <laughs> and the first thing we need to look at is why would people doubt in this particular case, since I know these people well, I know what their doubtings were. One is a woman's place in church. They don't see how the God who says he loves everybody can be a chauvinist. <laughs> uh, they would consider that feminism is a valuable uh, thing and that God shows himself to be chauvinist. And clearly then what's been written in the Bible must not really be from God if the way I believe in God is that he wouldn't exalt men over women. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with that thinking and the way I even worded it. I'm trying to do justice the way the argument was brought to me. But a woman's place in church was the argument that was brought in the letter. But I know that there were other things they were actually trying to get to, and they thought this would be the easiest to attack, 
to break down the fact that Paul is just a victim of his time. Our pastor is divorced, uh, yet he's serving as a pastor. Paul says the pastor must be married, but an elder or a bishop must be the husband of one wife, not a divorced person. And so clearly he's writing in the guise of his time and under his understanding as a Jew, but certainly isn't encompassing our days. And those are just things that were suggestions for the time. And the biggest one, the one they were actually aiming at and hoping to deconstruct Paul's inspiration so that he could get to this point, if God is a God of love, how can you say that homosexual love is sin? Well, Paul certainly brings that out several times, and they were trying to deconstruct and show that he must not be inspired. Well, is their argument solid? Is Paul just a victim of his time, or is he actually writing the words of Jesus and God? The first thing we need to consider when something like this is brought before us, even as we saw in our class today, sometimes these are surprise attacks. There was a surprise attack on David and his men in Ziklag, but it's really an opportunity to, to, to defend God and his character. It's not an opportunity to be offended. It's offensive sometimes, the attacks that are made, but we ought to first see it as an opportunity to defend God and his character and not to try to offend the people that we're talking to or react out of offense to ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, Peter describes part of our role as, as Christians. Uh, and he says, uh, 1 Peter three fifteen and 16, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Don't be ashamed or offended. Defend. Present a defense of the hope that is in you. If you believe that Paul's inspired, be ready to show other people why you believe those things. And I hope this lesson today will be helpful, not just with uh, showing why Paul's inspired, but why the Bible itself is inspired of God. So let's not uh, see this as an, an opportunity for offending someone or being offended ourselves, but a chance to defend God's will. I just love this. I've shared this several times, but I love the way Paul helped uh, Timothy to understand uh, exactly what's going on and what his role is. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 23, uh, when he's encouraging him in his work as an evangelist. And he says, uh, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Sometimes we react with offense and we begin a dispute. That's going to generate strife. Another, another way to do that is, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So they may come to their senses. I think it's helpful to understand that they've been duped. And what they're seeing in the world around them is a broken view of what the world is supposed to be. Now, we don't want to do that in a condescending way. We don't want to insinuate in some way that they're crazy or something like that. That's not the point. But we need to understand that they're not thinking with a proper mind. And the revelation of God can help them get there. And so we need to be confident that there's power in his word to change the way people think. And I think all of us are testament to that. These people have been taken captive and we want to help them be freed. As Jesus said, the truth is what will set them free. And so let's be ready to share the truth. So the question before us is, was Paul inspired? Was he just a victim of his day or did the things he write really come from God? Well, we've already seen some tried to deny his inspiration from the very beginning. In Acts chapter 9, here's a man who had gone to Damascus to bring back Christians and punish them. And yet, that's not what he came back with. When he finally did come back to Jerusalem, in Acts 9 verse 26, 
When he had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. He's been converted by this point. He's actually been preaching for three years now in Arabia and Damascus. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. <laughs> you can imagine. He had left there trying to murder Christians, and he comes back and says, I want to join with you now. <laughs> that would be a frightening thing. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas defends him, and then the apostles end up accepting him, and he comes in and begins working for a couple of weeks, we find out in Galatians, only for a couple of weeks with the church there before he's run out of town by the Jews who were unbelieving and were mad at him for turning uh, his tail. Second <laughs> um, Corinthians chapter 3, we're not going to read all of these texts, but over and over in Second Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his apostleship over and over. He's saying, what I've received, I've received from men. Some of these other apostles are trying to take uh, uh, credit for the work that we did. Some of these other apostles, and when he calls them that, he's speaking of false apostles. But he says he doesn't need a commendation among the Corinthians. They know him. They accepted his inspiration when he first came. Do we begin to again to commend ourselves? Do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He ends up saying in chapter 5, you are our letter of commendation. You received the gospel when we first preached it. In, chapters 10, in chapter 10, verses 10 through 13, he says, uh, His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person, con- person consider this. What we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. (laughs) He did his work among the Corinthians. They knew who he was. They had every evidence that he was speaking the truth. He worked the signs of an apostle among them, he will even say later in chapter 12. And so he didn't need to defend himself to them, and yet he did because of who was there challenging him. The truth is that all of denials, all of the denials about him did not impede the preservation of his writings. I think this is an important thing to consider. You had a lot of naysayers, a lot of detractors of Paul right there in the first century, and yet his writings survived. His writings survived and were preserved because there was no truth and no evidence behind all of the denials. The people that were there and could judge whether or not what they were saying about Paul was true and had Paul there to cross-examine him as a witness and to cross-examine those who were challenging him found no, no truth, no evidence to support those denials. And so his writings continue. And really the preservation of his writings is a great argument for the fact that they're inspired because they were accepted by the people who could weigh those directly. They were accepted then as inspired. They had ways to check that. In fact, Those who preserved these letters originally had feared Paul, but then loved him. (laughs) They learned that he was backing up the things that he spoke about, and he could prove that he had contact with the Lord. They knew him personally. They knew the other apostles who also accepted Paul. They possibly had known Jesus personally, those who originally preserved these letters. I think it's a strong argument for inspiration that these people who had contact directly with other inspired writers and possibly with the Lord accepted what Paul was writing as being inspired. They didn't dismiss his words even sometimes when they were very challenging to them. We'll see that in a moment. They were in a much better position to judge Paul and the age in which they lived than we are at this distance of 2,000 years now. 
And so sometimes we try to imagine, because of this evolutionary idea that we are much smarter than the people who came before us, that we are in a better position to judge. We are not smarter than they were. God has produced the same capacity for intellect in all generations. We have more technology, but that's the difference, and it's because we've built up on what they started. But they were in a position to judge much better than we are. And sometimes we just need to analyze what the texts originally say and look at that and make our judgment based on that instead of thinking of culture of their day or of our day or trying to incorporate our culture onto their culture in their day. There's a lot of that going on, and it really uh, makes it tough to see clearly what's going on. Those who preserve these letters also obeyed these letters by circulating them. Colossians 4, verse 16, he says, See that when you uh, have finished reading this letter, that the Laodiceans also read it, and that you read the letter that was sent to them. The fact that they continued setting these letters on instead of just crumpling them up and throwing them in the wastebasket shows that they believed they were, they were inspired. 1 Corinthians 4.17 and 16.1, Paul says, I teach the same thing in every church. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, we're familiar with that text. He says, you need to do the same things I taught the Galatians to do. And he's talking about taking up a collection of their means. All of these things prove that the teaching itself was being circulated, that he wasn't making things up as he went along and teaching one thing in one place and something else somewhere else. There was a connection and a unity in his teaching. All of these things argue for uh, inspiration, and the fact that these letters were preserved based on these facts argue for the inspiration of these letters. So those originally preserving these letters were in a better position than we are to judge whether or not they should have been included. However, someone rightly would say, well, the preservation of these letters is not necessarily proof that they're inspired. Yeah, you're right. Preservation alone would not be proof. There's a lot of non-inspired writings that have been preserved, not to the great extent that the biblical writings have been preserved. We need to understand that argument as well. There are very few copies in, that have been preserved for us of Socrates, of Plato. Josephus is quite well preserved. The Catholic Apocrypha, many, many others, the Annals of Caesar and many of the historians from, from the time of Rome. We have parts of those things preserved. There's a huge difference, even when you include things like the Catholic Apocrypha. And that difference is none of those writings claim to be inspired. <laughs> none of them, not even the Catholic Apocrypha. Some later had said these men were inspired. But in their own writings, they, some of them say, I'm writing this as a man. <laughs> I am not an inspired writer. This is my opinion. These are my thoughts. The rest of these are historical documents, maybe even by historians, that are written to be an opinion on what they're seeing, not inspired of God. So lots of non-inspired uh, writings have been preserved, but they haven't claimed inspiration. And so there's no argument about those typically. But Paul was adamant that he was inspired of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, one of those first verses we looked at, he says, you need to understand, if you disagree with me, that the things I'm writing are the commands of God. In that context, he's writing about women's roles, the very thing that this letter was predicated on. And he says, what I'm telling you is what God says. This is not me at all. So he's writing that in a context of something that would have been a strong correction to the practice they were involved in. They were wrong in what they were doing. And so it would have been really easy if he was just a product of his time, if he was just saying something that was Paul and not what God or Jesus had said, for them to have scratched that part out and not copied it and sent it on, or have ripped that part of the letter or the scroll off and just sent the part that was before it, or have trashed the entire thing. They didn't do that. They accepted the teaching that he was giving. Certainly not all. Some of these detractors wouldn't have accepted that. Many who fell away from the Lord. But the ones who preserved this and maintained these documents so they've made it to us, they accepted what he was teaching. They obeyed 
what he was teaching. They certainly didn't dismiss it as uninspired and just throw it out. Now, obviously, originally, some might have been because he defended that he's writing something that's inspired, but then they kept that, so they believed him. Look at his other claims that he makes in Galatians chapter 1, for example. And in this context, he's going to have an argument with another inspired apostle, with Peter. And in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he makes his argument based on the fact that he received the gospel as he was in Damascus, or he heard the gospel first in Damascus, and then he went and preached it right away and did not even go up to Jerusalem until three years later. Three years later. And the second time he went to Jerusalem was 14 years later. That trip he made in three years, he only saw Cephas, Simon, and James, the brother of our Lord. He met some of the other Christians that were there, but he only saw those two who were pillars of the church who could have taught him the gospel in the sense that people are accusing him of having learned it from men. His point is, I preached the gospel for three years before I ever met them, and then after two weeks, I was shipped off to Tarsus and kept preaching the gospel there. And he talks about in 2 Corinthians a revelation that he had from the Lord, and after that, he was preaching the gospel as an apostle, the capacity for doing the miracles to back up what he was preaching. But over all of this, he says, I did not receive this message from Jesus. In fact, when he went to Jerusalem, they gave him the right hand of fellowship to continue teaching and preaching what he had already been teaching. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 21, we're not going to read that, but Peter had turned away from having contact with the Gentiles once some brethren from James had come up to Antioch, and Paul withstood him to his face. He defended the truth of the gospel. As Peter later will say we need to do, sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Paul did that and told Peter, you are wrong. Even Barnabas was led away with their hypocrisy, Paul says. And yet Paul corrected them. And later on, Peter will say that our beloved Apostle Paul writes some hard things, but we need to listen to him. That men twist those things that he's written. They're hard to understand, but we need to understand them. Peter had a hard time, but he understood what Paul was saying. He didn't challenge him. He didn't dismiss the things that Paul was writing as uninspired. Later, he said, you need to listen to what he's written. (laughs) That is a strong testimony to the fact that Paul was inspired. Finally, in Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 5, as Paul is talking about what he's written to them, he says, By revelation he made known to me the mystery, Christ, as I have written briefly already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. He speaks the same way that Peter speaks of his inspiration. And Paul says, I received it by revelation. It was revealed to me by the Spirit. And those who received this letter, this is the Ephesians, possibly the Laodiceans, those who received his letter did not dismiss it as uninspired or that Paul was just saying these things. They obeyed it and they received it. That's an important thing to consider. We're not going to read all of these verses, but I want you to understand that Paul, in every one of his letters, makes an absolute claim to inspiration. Over and over and over again, he says, I'm an inspired apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) He never once says, this is just my thinking. When he does, he says in in 2 Corinthians, but I do believe I have the Spirit of God. And he gives it as an opinion, and he's not giving it as a command. So we need to understand that even when he does that, he makes a distinction. The letters he's writing are by inspiration. 
He's endorsed, as I already mentioned, by other inspired writers. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This is where, uh, I misquoted earlier, I was thinking of 1 Peter 3. But in 2 Peter 3, this is where Peter talks about the, uh, the importance of listening. Um, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, I'll get there eventually. Um, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter puts Paul's writings on a par with the scriptures. That is a word that he reserves for that which has been inspired by God. It's wisdom that was given to Paul, Peter says here. And remember, Peter had been rebuked by Paul, and yet he writes this loving uh, uh, review of what Paul has been writing. In Acts chapter 9, and then in 20, 22 and 26, we have the account of Paul's conversion over and over and over again by the very analytical Luke, the beloved physician, as he's writing these things down, and he leaves no doubt to the fact that Paul was visited by the living God, by Christ resurrected, and that Christ set him apart for the mission he was to do and was sending him then to the Gentiles with this work to be done. Paul was inspired of the Lord. To deny inspiration of Paul also means that we have to deny at least Peter and Luke. Peter said Paul wrote scripture. If he's not inspired of God, that's just a lie. This is something outright that Peter thinks. We need to deny Peter. Peter is really hard to find anybody in history that denies. The Catholic Church did such a good job of defending his apostleship and his, uh, his inspiration that really there's been no serious or credible attempt to discredit Peter ever. That's just from early on, he's been, there's a strong lineage of, of succession, not among the papacy, just among Christians who have preserved his writings and early Christians that wrote so much quoting from Peter and writing about Peter. No one's ever made a serious attempt to discredit him. There's also been no serious or credible attempt to discredit Luke. Luke also, who Paul uh, describes as writing scripture and one of the things that he quotes directly from Luke's gospel. And so they are inspired men who are uh, uh, endorsing one another as inspired as well. As we look at all of that, and this is the first part of this argument at least, the evidence weighs heavily on the side of inspiration. If we understand what inspiration is and how it works, all the evidence points to that. And if it is inspired, then it is the Word of God or Jesus. It doesn't matter whether we like it or not. It is the Word of God or Jesus and not just the words of Paul. And I want us to sort of look at a, a couple of things that Paul says that, that points that out in his own teaching, again, by people who could have rejected what he was saying, but did not. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. In Thessalonica, there was a lot of pressure from the Jews from the synagogue there. They were willing to, to beat some of the people there. They took uh, funds from Jason, who had harbored some of the men there. They made a hard uh, uh, row of it for the, for the people that were converted. And yet, the reason they were able to stay strong is they understood that what Paul was teaching was from God. And we've mentioned this verse already twice. I'll mention it again, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, in a context of correcting what these women were doing in the worship services, Paul said, 
you must understand the things I'm writing are the commandment of God. If anyone thinks he is spiritual, he says, he'll recognize that what I write to you is from God. There's more to this letter, though. I want to get down to the second part of this. Is Paul inspired? I think the evidence points clearly in the direction of his inspiration. But even then, was he tempted or tempered by the time and lifestyle in which he lived? I would say certainly. We need to understand that. I think it's something else that argues strongly for inspiration, though, when we consider that. Um, he, he may have been influenced. I would say certainly. We are all influenced by the culture in which we live. But what they're trying to say is that his inspiration, that his writing was influenced. And if we understand what inspiration is, the fact that it's God revealing his will through flawed men, through imperfect men, we'll understand that the inspiration itself, that the words themselves that are, that are laid down, are clearly not influenced by the culture and the day. That, that is a new way of understanding the Bible, and it's something that's gaining vogue recently. This concept of interpreting culture properly and then interpreting the text in light of culture. And what usually ends up happening is we appropriate our culture back onto their culture and say, here's where they got things wrong because obviously we're right. And so then we interpret it through our culture that interprets their culture and then tries to see what did it mean. That is a real process of Bible study that's going on in most places now. That's where the new theology is, is landing. We need to start with the Bible. We who understand it is inspired of God recognize that it's God who influences culture or ought to, and that our culture in Christ ought to be different than the culture of the world that we live in. So if we understand what inspiration is, the words here are clearly not influenced in the sense that most people think by culture. They may have cultural cues in them. That we may see things in here like the apostles in the boat who thought they saw a ghost when they saw Jesus walking on the water. Does it mean ghosts exist? The culture thought it did. Those men were victims of their culture. The inspired record records that, but the inspired record doesn't talk about ghosts that are out walking on the sea. It was men who thought that is what the inspired record shows us. We need to make a clear distinction as we're studying through the Bible to see those kind of things. But if we understand what inspiration is, we understand that these words are the words of God in Christ. That's what Paul claims in Ephesians 3. These are not his words and even worse, this is somewhere that the new theology is going as well, they're not just his thoughts. That's even worse. Why? <laughs> because the point some people are making now is that God sort of just influenced the way men thought about things, and then they got the idea, and then they wrote what they thought about the idea. That is as far from what the Bible claims of inspiration as you can get. The Bible says God put his words in the mouth of beginning with, Aaron and Moses. He literally gave them the words to say. And as we see that in the writing of the Old Testament over and over, that's what God says. This is the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Not, this is more or less what God thinks about it. Let's do it this way. That's never how inspiration worked in the Old Testament. And that's not how the inspiration works in the New Testament. God teaches words by which we must obey. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 very clearly uh, teaches this concept of, of inspiration. I think part of our issue is we don't study enough on the question of inspiration. We don't understand how it works. We're going to look at how Paul really lays it out. I love this description here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. And he's really making a distinction between the wisdom of men, which is something that the Corinthians were very tempted by because of this society. This is a cultural thing. They're in a Greek society where you've got Socrates and Plato and these great thinkers. And they're receiving this word of God that is, there's sort of a conflict here. 
And what are they going to be impressed by? <laughs> the wisdom of men or the wisdom of God? Here's how the wisdom of God comes to us. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 9. As it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The idea is it doesn't originate with us. Oh, I had this brilliant thought. That's a Greek thought. Eureka! <laughs> I've just discovered something out of nowhere. It was inspiration from the muses. No, <laughs> that is not how the Bible uh, uh, works. The Bible doesn't start with us. God, verse 10, has revealed his plan and his things for us um, through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not this wisdom of the ages, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Notice verse 13 now. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but insert words which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's the idea. Words is the medium by which these things are conveyed, not ideas, not emotions, not, oh, that's what I thought. It is God giving his words. Paul lays that cleanly down for us. This is not Paul's words or thoughts. These are words that God has revealed through Paul and others that are apostles. Galatians chapter 1 again, he says he's got his apostleship and his message not from men, but from God. The Thessalonians received it not as the word of men, but the words of God. And if you're spiritual, you'll recognize the things I'm writing to you are the words of God, the commands of the Lord. Over and over, Paul defends that concept. Even if we concede a cultural influence, and I think we have to concede that at some point, it's really not a strong argument for this particular aspect they're trying to argue about women's roles. Women weren't as oppressed in the first century as we might like to think. <laughs> Again, we're sort of looking at this evolutionary time model and thinking we got it right when we brought feminism around and really the movement from the 60s on of, you know, women's lib and all of these things. We got it right because we figured out how wrong all that other stuff was. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> you can read a few pages in the Bible and right away you get the picture that women weren't so oppressed as we might have imagined. They may have become oppressed later through the Middle Ages and through some other times, but in the first century... Think about Herodias and how much power she was able to wield, that she got John the Baptist beheaded. There's quite a bit of power there. You ever heard of Cleopatra? Most of us have. Not in the Bible, but certainly we understand there are some pretty powerful women going down through history. Jezebel, she basically was running Ahab's kingdom. We see that in the Bible. So even in the Old Testament times, we see that women rose to some prominent roles. But in the New Testament times, let's think about the, the culture in which Paul himself was living and writing. And this, when people make this argument, this is exactly where I go. Acts chapter 13 to begin. We start seeing this, interestingly enough, Acts 13 is when the Holy Spirit separates Paul and Barnabas to begin a work among the Gentiles. They're leaving from Antioch, where this first church of Jews and Gentiles together is, but it's still relatively within the Jewish-influenced lands. But now they're going out. Some cities they'll get to don't even have a synagogue. That's how far out of the Jewish influence they are. And so in Acts 13, we begin to see that first missionary journey when they're going out to the Gentiles. That's an interesting thing to note culturally, if you want to talk about culture being in the Bible. But starting in verses 49 and 50, after they've been preaching for a while, um, 
The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They're still among the Jews, and yet the Jews find prominent women, devout prominent women, women that are starting to believe on God, maybe proselytes, but they're Greek women, and so they've got some sort of authority in the city. They're able to help expel Paul and Barnabas from town. They're prominent women that the Jews went and found. They may not agree with these women being in these positions of authority and power, but they're sure going to use it when it's convenient to get people out of town. They don't want preaching. We see this again in Acts chapter 17. This is now in the, the second missionary uh, journey. Acts chapter 17 and verse 4. As Paul is preaching here in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded, he's in the synagogue here, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Prominent women in Acts 13, leading women in Acts 17. We just go down a few more verses, Acts 17 verse 12. Now they're in Berea. Many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Why? Because they were reading their Bible every day. Prominent women believed. Over and over, we see this pattern in the Greek-speaking world. And so, you've got liberated, leading women in the Greek culture. Paul's a victim of his culture. That's why he's writing these things. But his culture says women ought to be in positions of authority. In fact, I think it's why we see what he wrote. He's writing to a Gentile Jew church in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 14, when he has to explain that the law teaches something different than what they grew up understanding. And so they need to understand women aren't given these roles of leadership in the church. Where is the other one written to? Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, who is serving in Ephesus, a Greek and, and Jewish mixture there as well, mostly a Gentile city at this point in Ephesus, and another place where they're going to need this instruction. It's something that the law taught, the Jews understand, but the Gentile women, the Greek women coming in, because of their culture, need to understand what God thinks about that, what God says about that specifically. And his words are the, are the last word on that. Interestingly enough, if we want to appeal to the argument that he's a victim of his culture, none of Paul's arguments have to do with culture. He doesn't appeal to his time when he's dealing with the women. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, as the law also says. This is an argument that dates back more than 1,500 years by the time Paul is writing about this. He doesn't say, you know, as Greek culture teaches you. <laughs> he says, no, as the law has been teaching, this is not a role for women. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, he doesn't go back even to the law, really. He goes back to Adam and Eve and explains the order in creation more than 4,500 years back uh, by the time Paul is writing that. In Genesis 2, we have the word helper. <laughs> and in Genesis 3, we have this concept of the man ruling over his wife. These are roles that God gave Adam and Eve at creation. The culture that God established in the garden. That's what we're trying to get back to. That's what God wants to bring us back to as we repeal sin, as it's remitted from our lives and we are brought into contact with him to do things the way he wants them done. And so Paul does not appeal to culture in any of his arguments, really. He's appealing to what God says. So is Paul inspired? Absolutely. The evidence is, is really clear. Over and over, he makes that claim. The people who could have challenged that claim did and were unsuccessful and then preserved when they proved that he actually was what he claimed to be. Others who were inspired, where there's no doubt about, 
as Peter and Luke and even others, uh, have never been challenged and they claim that Paul was inspired. He was an inspired apostle over and over. And so what he's written is valid and it's the word of God. The question is, what will we do with it? <laughs> we may not like it. We may want to challenge it. We may try to find ways around it. But in the end, it's what God said. We need to understand, just as Paul said, I am not saying these things of myself. You must understand what I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They're God's word and they're God's plan. And Paul makes it very clear why that's important. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, here's a man who's being challenged on every side. Here's a man who could have cowered down and said, look, I'll change it to fit the culture. <laughs> uh, you don't like it when I rebuke you. Let me just say it a different way then so you'll, so you'll enjoy it. But here's what he said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm not changing it for either culture. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of what it says, even though it says things that are hard to hear. This is what it says. <laughs> and my words aren't going to have the power to save you. That's often where the argument comes down. Because people, when you start laying these things out, will say, well, what do you really believe about? What do you really think about it? And my answer is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I think about it. What matters is what it is. <laughs> and what are you going to do with that? My thinking, my words are not going to save you. The power of salvation is in the gospel. And that's why Paul wrote it down. And that's why he leaned on it. And that's why he appealed for us to believe it. Because in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. We need the words that Paul wrote down. Not his words, they don't have that power. But Christ's words revealed in the gospel, we need those. We must receive them and obey them. As he, he uh, exhorted the Thessalonians and was thankful for the Thessalonians, they received it as the word of God, therefore they obeyed it as the word of God. What will you do with Paul's words? <laughs> My challenge to you, don't just accept it because I'm saying it. Analyze the evidence. We've presented a lot for you. There's much more. Analyze the evidence. Be ready as a Christian to defend why you believe that the, the gospel is an inspired record. And there's lots of ways to do that. There's lots of evidence. And if you believe that, then live it. <laughs> and if you believe it, share it with others who need this gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe. If you are not a Christian, we want to help you with that. We want to share this gospel with you. It's got the power. It's not us. It's not what we're doing here that we have done. It's what God has designed for us to do that should appeal to your heart and call you to be uh, redeemed by the blood of the one who gave himself for you. We want to introduce you to him, teach you about him, and share his gospel with you. As much as we can do that, as much as you're willing to share in that with us, we invite you to come. If you are a Christian and you've been struggling to, to live as though you believe these words are from God, if you've been living them as suggestions and not as commandments, you can change that today. It's called repentance. We want to help you do that. We want to hold your hands up. We want to walk together with you in the light as he is in the light. If we can help you do that, let your need be known. Come forward if you need to while we're standing and singing this song.